To the untrained eye, real estate is the business of shelter, of comfort, of home. But industry insiders know that just behind the curtain resides a world teeming with innovation and disruption and sometimes brutal competition. And there, in the midst of it all, stand our industry leaders, the folks with the answers to our million-dollar questions in real estate. We've got one of those leaders here for you today. I'm Jessica Edgerton. And I'm Tarko Heidinga from leading real estate companies of the world. Let's pull back the curtain. Welcome to Million Dollar Question. This is a Soulfire production. It has been on a wild ride for the past two years, and luxury real estate is no exception. That said, the real estate consumerist patterns of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals has taken its own fascinating trajectory during the pandemic and now the economic shift we're experiencing mid-2022. To shed light on the luxury real estate market of today and tomorrow, I have here for your guest today one of the top luxury real estate professionals in the world, Mickey Alam Khan. Mickey is the president of Luxury Portfolio International, the founder of Luxury Daily, and I am lucky enough to say my colleague at leading real estate companies of the world. Hi, Mickey. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jess. Really appreciate this opportunity. This is one of my favorite mediums to do a podcast. It's fantastic. Well, you are you are omnipresent in all mediums all the time these days. Um, glad to have you on this one. Let's let's get started. As you know, the audience for these podcasts is really anyone who is either involved in or interested in real estate across the spectrum. So we've got agents out there. We've got uh, prospective buyers and sellers out there. We have leadership out there and folks who are just generally passionate about real estate. Now, with that in mind, we have been seeing a crazy 24 months, pandemic, economy, all the rest of it. And when we look at the grand picture of that in real estate in general, things are tricky. When you get into what really amounts to another microcosm, a universe unto itself, and we're talking about luxury, especially in the high net worth individual luxury market arena, you, you're kind of, you're not able to make necessarily direct connections there. So one of the first things I'd like to start out with here is for you to kind of pull back the curtain on what's happening, sure, in the real estate economy in general, but then how that equates specifically to luxury and, and high net worth luxury real estate. Thank you, Jess. Uh, as you pointed out, the last 24 months were unprecedented, right? Uh, The pandemic really uh, locked people in. They couldn't travel. There was a lot of pent-up demand. And depending on where you are, wealth was basically preserved and, in fact, increased. In the last two years, globally, we added nearly $30 trillion in wealth. So think about the amount of wealth that was generated and where does this money typically go? It goes to equities, it goes to real estate, it goes to art, it goes to travel. But the number one category for investment is real estate, uh, along with art, very close. And obviously, if you follow the stock markets, up until a few months ago, we were just on upward trajectory. 
worldwide. And if this Russian invasion of Ukraine hadn't happened, guess what? We'd be very close to Dow 40,000 by the end of this year. So what I see happening is the real estate market has really um, you know, performed well uh, in the last 24 months. Now what we're seeing with the stock market kind of dropping a bit, equities have you know shown some value, we're seeing a slight return to pre-pandemic behavior. Um, and by that I mean we are not going to see 2008. At the luxury end of the market, all the deals are done in cash. Affluent folks are very well financed, very well invested. Um, they, I mean, if the market goes up and down, it's just a paper loss for a lot of these people. Uh, so you can see that the market of properties over $5 million, that market will be pretty much, you know, continuing the way it does. Uh, yes, time and market will increase. And that's one thing we are noticing across the country. But the trouble starts with properties under $2 million. That's where we're seeing a surge of listings on the market. And we are seeing, for example, on luxuryportfolio.com, which is our own luxury portfolio's listing site, in February, we had 14,000 active listings. Today, we have 20,000 plus. That's nearly a 60 plus percent increase. So we are seeing... Uh, you know, buyers sit on the fence. We are seeing the mortgage rates take effect. I mean, don't forget, like in December, the mortgage rate was for 30-year fixed rate, fixed year, 30-year uh, fixed rate mortgage was 3.1%. Now it's 5.8%. So if you're looking at properties under $2 million, that's where the mortgage rate increase hits. So that's where we see a lot more listings come to the market. So all, overall, uh, High net worth individuals are okay. Uh, maybe their stock portfolio has taken a slight hit. Uh, time on market has gone up across the board, but there's no reason to panic yet. We'll talk about the yet in a minute. So you you say, though, you mentioned this is not 2008, 2009, no. right? And I've talked to other guests about that as well. But from a luxury perspective in particular, I'd love to hear your division of... Um, your comparison of what happens then to what happens now. Yes. So in 2008, what happened was, I mean, people were overly leveraged. They bought homes either for speculation or for themselves, and they financed them, right? And there was a housing bubble crash. It started in California and then spread across the country and then, you know, the banks. So you had this perfect storm of combining the housing market bubble with the uh, uh, bear turns and all the banks basically mm -hmm. collapsing. And then you have this two-year, three-year slowdown in the market. We don't have those conditions here. Uh, the Fed has just stress-tested most of the banks. Now they said that the top three banks need to solidify their bank sheets, balance sheets, because they feel that they're still a little weak. But on the whole, Morgan Stanley, I mean, not Morgan Stanley, but J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and Citi, they're much better off than where they were 12 or 13 years ago. So that part of the economy is solid. When it comes to lending, most of the people who bought these homes at the high end, they bought it as second, third. I mean, for them, any loss is a paper loss. Where we have to watch and pay attention is companies such as BlackRock, 
and all those private equity groups and hedge funds who have bought these properties. Uh, you know, like I think BlackRock alone bought $1.2 million, million properties in the United States during the pandemic. That's how many homes they bought. We don't even know how many homes they own. So what will they do? Will they divest as the market softens? We don't know that. So that's an outlier there. But there's, you know, there's no panic here. There is no uh, housing market crash. Uh, there is no uh, uh, bank collapses. Uh, the only thing we have to worry about is, you know, the Fed keeps on increasing the interest rate because they obviously want to deal with the inflationary environment. And they raised it by 75 basis points just a few weeks ago. And there's another talk of another 65 basis points increase, which means that that has a domino effect because it basically uh, will impact the mortgage rate. And, you know, I mean, we're already at a 40-year high. And then, but for the economy, for the government, most important thing is making sure that inflation doesn't wreck the economy because we are heading towards if 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 this tips into something worse we are looking at stagflation slow growth with high inflation so that's what you want to avoid but again if you're looking at the affluent market you know they got stocks they got art they got homes they got yachts they're insulated to some extent it's the upper middle class and the middle class that get impacted Let's talk for a minute about inventory, because that's something that's really been a focus for the market as well. But again, there are differences, of course, between when you're looking at under 2 million versus over 2 million. What has happened with housing inventory during the pandemic? And what, Mickey, do you predict seeing uh, for the next 12 to 24 months in terms of folks who are really out there looking? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you mentioned the inventory situation over the last 24 months. I mean, once... COVID-19 spread across the country and around the world, people made a couple of decisions. One, based on their safety. And two, based on lifestyle. Once they had the option to work from home, that basically unmoored them from where they live to where they work. So they started looking around to states, in the, in, at least in the United States, uh, to states which matched their requirements in terms of low taxation, better weather, and the same cultural values. So we saw a migration based on those three patterns. And in the affluent end of the market, a lot of these folks have homes. Like, for example, if you're in New York, you have homes in Florida, Palm Beach, or you have homes in Aspen. And if you're in Chicago, you have homes in California, and you have homes in Florida. So that kind of situation just accelerated. So people who were on the fence of buying second or third homes they decided, uh, you know, basically uh, pull the plug and do it. Go ahead and do it. Then there were people who basically panicked and went and bought properties, right? What happened was all those properties that were white elephants that sat on the market for 12 months, 24 months, they basically sold like hotcakes. So the first round cleared out all the very good inventory. Then you had the second round of people who basically said, all right, the market's still hot. Maybe time for me to list my second home and cash out. So you had the second wave. Now you're in the third wave where people are saying, all right, we have to come back to work. And a lot of these big corporations are saying, hey, we want you in the office one day a week, two days a week, three days a week. We are seeing in some places a reverse migration. People are moving back to cities for school and for work. So where they spent a lot of time in the Hamptons, now they're spending the same amount of time in, in, in New York or, you know, 
So that kind of behavior has basically, again, put pressure on inventory in big cities. So New York, for example, has become very, very hot again, Manhattan especially. Uh, rents are through the roof, and uh, they're bidding wars uh, for condos. The co-op market was always stable. That didn't change much. Uh, but you look at a city like Miami, which is a victim of its own success. In some cases, rents have doubled in the last one year. So you're seeing this new uh, environment emerge. So in the next 12 months, depending on the outcome of the elections, uh, we have uh, elections for states as well as the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, depending on that, we might see a surge again if you know the Republicans take control of the House and the Senate. I won't be surprised if we see kind of a reverse migration from red states to blue states. Then you have this whole issue of abortion. So the next one year is full of surprises with politics, with Russia, with China, and with the pandemic. So these four. But I see the market stabilizing, and I still feel that as long as the stock market holds up its end, the affluent are okay. The key is the stock market, because a lot of their wealth is locked up in equities, and obviously that's unrealized wealth, but that's still used to borrow loans and then buy properties and out against it. And that is a that is a big question. What is going to happen? Yes. Right. There's so many, there are so many factors here. Well, let's let and by the way, just going back to a comment you made a second ago, you said there are bidding wars. Now, one thing I'm understanding is yes, we've seen incredible bidding wars when it comes to sales, but we're starting to see bidding wars when it comes to rentals yes. now. Is that happening in the luxury market as well? That is happening in the luxury market precisely because first-time buyers are being priced out of properties. And so they're saying, all right, we'll hold off on our purchase, let's rent for the next year. And that's what's happening in markets such as Phoenix, Arizona. It's happening in Scottsdale. It's happening in New York. It's happening in Florida. It's happening across major metros because these first-time buyers, they have the cash, but people are coming in with $100,000, $200,000 extra, and they can't match that. And they're not getting the properties they want. So for that, they're resorting to the rental market. And unfortunately, you know, I don't see that situation changing the next six months. Well, and we've we've got a we've got a new construction issue as well, again, across yes. the board. But I'm imagining that that's reflected in the luxury market as well. Yeah, you don't have enough supply because the supply chain is still an issue. I mean, you still have issues with China and then Russia. I mean, don't forget uh, Ukraine and Russia, big supplies of steel, iron and steel. I mean, how are you going to build new buildings? If you know you have a choke point right there, and then you have issues with ports, and then you have issues with China and all these trade wars that we are doing, I mean, oh, I think we need a just a huge global reset. I mean, uh, but we don't see construction. I mean, it it typically takes three years for an average condo property to go from dirt to a fully standing building, and so even if people buy condos now, you're only going to see occupation in the next two or three years. So people will have to wait for those next two years. And where will they uh, invest? They'll go and rent. Well, for those folks who are on the waiting list and for those lucky enough to have a property now in the luxury market, last month you put out your gorgeous State of Luxury Real Estate Report. I always enjoy it, reading it. 
there was a real focus on what the luxury client is looking for in terms of the amenities and feel of their home. Can you go into a little bit of detail for our listeners on what is hot right now in luxury amenities? Yes, and I think uh, it bears in mind that these findings that we announced, you know, they're basically, they were always there. But number one, top of the list is, you know, when people uh, look for luxury homes, they want space, they want views, uh, they want sustainable materials in their buildings. Uh, they want the opportunity to enjoy the outdoors. And they want their homes to reflect offices, basically. They want entertainment in every room. They want strong Wi-Fi. They want to be able to work from home and look professional. They want to make sure that when they invite people over... I mean, don't forget that today we carry multiple devices, right? And we want super speeds. So they want to make sure that that home environment of theirs mirrors an office. And then obviously safety is a big issue for them. I mean, the, the rich don't like getting sick. Uh, so to them, it's very important to have access to healthcare. And that's another reason why you see that wherever they buy homes, if you look at the geography, they're good hospitals just within two hours or an hour, or the ability to fly to hospitals. So that's another consideration. I know that we don't highlight that too much, but you know, medical facilities around them. And then obviously, common sense education for their children. They want to be in neighborhoods with good schools around them and great travel connections. So all these factors were highlighted in our report. And it boils down to simply a better quality of life and being far from the madding crowd. That really is what they want. The rich want to be insulated from the noise and the hurly-burly of this world. And so our report just accentuated that. And even in terms of design, we did something which has never been done before by a real estate broker, uh, network like ours. We invited an architecture firm in Europe to design a house, a luxury home, the ideal luxury home of today. And we basically polled a few thousand affluent folks from around the world. And we got their dimensions, we got their specs, and we put together this house. To me, it looks very much like a mid-century modern house. Uh, there's a lot of glass, but what struck me was the access to nature, indoor-outdoor settings, and clean materials, and light. And that's what people are embracing. People with money want to commune with nature. Is that something that is new based on what happened over the last 24 months with the pandemic? Folks were moving out, um, focused on space. Um, but is that going to be a residual effect, do you think? Or is that just something that has always been the case? It's always been there. We just, uh, I hate to say this, we just, it was just accentuated and, so, you know, as a salient feature of that property. But if you look at grand mansions from the years past, I mean, they had all these facilities, right? You had indoor gyms, you had pools, and you had sunrooms, and you had greenhouses, and you had everything. And what happened was... Uh, in the 80s and 90s, we went to some different structures where we thought we don't need uh, a pool room to play a pool or billiards. Uh, you don't need a library. Uh, you know, they went for these vast, expansive kitchens and all that. Well, guess what? Now they do want the separations because, you know, if you're a couple that's working and if you've got the luxury of working from home and partly from the office, 
you want that separation so that the two of you don't, you know, you don't want to be in a dining room all the time, right? So the study is back, the library is back, uh, and corners where your privacy, they're all back. If you look at luxury homes 100 years ago, they had all these features. So it's, it's basically a return to, you know, uh, the homes of not the Victorian era, but I'd say, you know, kind of the Gilded Age type stuff without the guilt, you know, and that's what it is. And another return there, always popular, but uh, I think there's a resurgence as well with home entertaining. During the pandemic, yes. folks wanted to be with their crew and not yes. go out to the luxury uh, bars and clubs and all the rest of it. So what is the what are we seeing with sort of the, the balance between private spaces in the homes, but also entertainment areas? I think uh, you're going to see that become a requirement. But, I mean, to me, that's more aspirational. I hate to say this. We are social. We will go back to bars. We will go back to restaurants. And we will go. It's even, can't name names, but uh, I went to a listing recently. And fabulous home. Great property. Hundreds of acres. The couple that owned the property didn't have a butler, didn't have any staff indoors their staff was security and all that kind of stuff so we go into the kitchen they had to serve stuff themselves now in the old days you had maids and you had butlers and valets and all these guys who were in the house doing all this stuff you're 65 years old you have a party of 20 people you're not going to be cleaning up the dishes and moving stuff around at some point you're going to say you know what to heck with it let's cater or let's just go out Let's go to the club. So it's got to be a mix of both. So for intimate settings, they'll do it themselves. But for larger groups and gatherings, they will go back to their clubs. They will go back to restaurants. They will go back to resorts. I I don't see that behavior changing. This is just a a reaction to the pandemic. And, you know, obviously their vested interest in saying, oh, everyone's going to entertain at home all the time. No, they're not. Let's turn toward the leadership side of our business so, Mickey, as president of Luxury Portfolio, you are out talking to the top leadership in our industry just about every week. What are they seeing right now from a brokerage standpoint, and what are their concerns and also hopes for the next 12 months? So, what are the concerns of the brokers that I talk to, and uh, what are they seeing in the next 12 months? Very interesting. They're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, a slight slowdown in the market in terms of property sales. And I would caution all people in real estate, whether you're in luxury or non-luxury, to basically gear for a change in mindset, especially your top agents, to get them to change their mindset from a scarcity of listings to scarcity of buyers. Because at some point, you're going to basically have to fight to find buyers. The last two years, most agents were order takers. Calls came in, emails came in, want to see the property or, you know, I'd like to buy the property site unseen. That situation's changing. What are brokers finding out? They need to have more open houses now. They're entertaining multiple offers and the buyer saying, hold out, I want to see more, right? So you're seeing that kind of environment creeping up more open houses, time and markets increasing. So what has got, got thinking? 
as these listings increase and buyers are scarcer than what they used to be, they find out that they'll need to train their agents more to basically be more skilled and looking for buyers, work on their relationships and their black books. A lot of the agents who enter this market a dozen years ago, they were not, they have never seen a downturn in their life after the last recession. If they enter the market in 2012, they don't know what a downturn is. They don't know what a slowdown is. So now you've got to teach these people how to make sure you use tools like we have at Luxury Portfolio, right? All the marketing, intelligence, events, uh, brand collabs, all the tools that we have. How do you make sure that that agent is a real advisor and not just a transactional person? Upskilling their agents is going to be the toughest challenge right now. That's number one. Number two, keeping your top producers. That is a real threat. These top producers are now looking around. They're saying, all right, am I getting the right support from my broker? Do I feel the love? And where they were used to getting all these sales just sitting at home, now they've actually got to go and look for sales. So they're going to go to brokerages that say, all right, we've got the right support ecosystem for you. And this is a good home for you where you can trust your financial future with us for the next three to five years. So that kind of security is something that the brokers have to convey to their top producers that guess what? We have your back in terms of marketing and in terms of your financial interests. This is also a great opportunity for brokers now to rationalize the commission structure. When the market was really hot, these agents went and asked for the moon and the commission split was dangerously, dangerously in favor of one party and not the other. There has to be some recalibration. So I think we might see those discussions go back to saying, hey, you can't just have a 95-5 split now. We need to get We're not talking to- numbers, though. No, no numbers. we're not talking numbers. But the fact is... <laughs> Putting my lawyer hat on. Oh, no, no, that's fine. But what I'm saying is, that's just hypothetical. What I'm saying is, there has to be some parity because if the brokerage... I know they make money from ancillary services, but you can't always have your brokerage main business as a loss leader because long-term that won't work. If they have to give the proper support to their producers, then they need to have the revenue coming in to hire the right marketing staff. So I see all, you know, all of this upskilling, uh, basically making sure that they have the right marketing tools and the right affiliations in place. That's important. Uh, so when times get a little tough, that's when you need to basically educate your workforce and say that, hey, the only way you can stand out is to be more knowledgeable and to make sure that you're staying in touch with your past clients because you get most of your business when it's repeat. And that actually leads me to my million dollar question for this episode, which I'm going to, I'm going to throw out for the agents out there. So we have seen a surge in agent, overall agent numbers. NAR is up to 1.6, I think, agents who have come in, you know, and, and are, and are now active realtors in the United States. Um, A lot of those are aspiring luxury agents. So from your perspective, Mickey, Um, What is the one attribute that you see across the board for those top luxury successful agents? What is a secret that they all share that allows them to reach those heights of success? I think what makes a top agent, a top producer different from the rest is 
it applies to top performers in every industry. It's simply they have more knowledge. They have more actionable insight that they put to use. You can be the best agent, you can talk the talk, but if you don't come across as, like for example in luxury, when you're going to pitch for a listing of a, you know, a eight to nine figure property, you're dealing with someone who is used to dealing with the best yacht brokers, the top luxury watchmakers, uh, brands such as Cartier, Hermes, Louis Vuitton. That's their benchmark for luxury service. You have to ask yourself, are you in that league? Because they want you to be in that league. They expect you. They're entrusting their most precious property to you. And if Cartier gives them that level of service for a $20,000 watch, what do they expect from you to pitch their nine-figure property? Right? So that level of sophistication and knowledge is absolutely key. Without that, you're not a top agent. When I talk to top agents, they're subject matter experts. I ask them about pretty much everything. What's the state of the market? What's the state of the economy? What are people buying? Where are they shopping? What do you think about the future? They're an analyst. They know their market. They just don't know about construction. They know about design. They know about aesthetics. They know about color. That when you walk into a house, they can give you a quick snap judgment and say, all right, I would not use that color in the foyer. I would not use that color in the bathroom, especially if it's a guest bathroom. Because that's the first, that half bath is the first bathroom that a prospect will see when they walk in. Make sure that is the best looking bathroom in the whole house, right? Small things like that. That kind of insight top producers have. And guess what? They know people, connections. And one of the places that they connect, I know it's a little premature to be talking about this, but we're already planning. You put together one of the top luxury real estate events in the world annually. It's coming up in March of 2023. I know your teams are already behind the scenes planning. This is a place where people do come together. They do do that networking and they do gain that knowledge. Can you give us a little sneak peek of what our guests are going to be in for uh, coming up in March? Yes. So, you know, as you pointed out, Jess, the, uh, the event, the Luxury Summit, is literally the most prestigious luxury real estate event in the world. And what we have is a mix of brokers, top agents, uh, luxury portfolio team members, and uh, experts from the world of luxury coming together to share ideas and insights of where the world of real estate is moving. And it gives you ideas and insights, knowledge. So I think we want to work on basically making sure that you are stronger together as a network, number one. Number two, that your knowledge upskilling process continues. We don't lose sight of that fact. Number three, you really benchmark yourself against the best. You know, we really want you to think that, all right, what is it that when you walk into a Cartier store, makes that experience different from walking into, say, I don't want to mention, since you don't like mentioning numbers, I can't mention other brands who are not the same league as Cartier. <laughs> but the fact is, our goal is to raise the level of sophistication of our attendees with this next event. Raise it one notch higher. Why? Because the environment in 2023 
will be dramatically different from the environment in 2022. We don't know how the Russia-Ukraine issue will end. We don't know if we'll have a new China issue. We don't know if this pandemic will end. But what we do know is as long as the stock market holds up, there'll be plenty of wealth around. And that wealth goes to three or four buckets. And the number one bucket is the home. So at, you should never lose sight of that fact that the wealthy like to buy property, their trophies, boasting points, whatever it is. So how do you make sure that keeping in mind that mindset of the affluent and you're there as a producer, how do you get that business? Especially people from our network, right? I mean, we talk about independent luxury brokerages, right? You're locally connected. We are basically brands that you know have 50 to 100 years in the community, right? You know people, you know places. And that has to come through. So we want to make the connection that people, places, community, make sure that we make the connection. So when we do our event, it's a three-day event. We give them great experiences and great knowledge and great connections, all three. So I'm going to make sure that we elevate that a notch and just prepare them and kind of make sure that, you know, when it comes time for the pitch and they're up against competition, that, you know, you, you want to be the Cartier when there are McDonald's and Burger King next to you. I'm excited to be there. I'm excited to see it all in action. I'm excited to see those listeners out there that are, that are able to join us, join us for that. Mickey, I close out each of these sessions by asking my guests um, to, to provide our listeners with, as a leader, what is the number one piece of advice that you carry in your heart during difficult times? What is that leadership nugget that you can, you can pass down to our folks out there? I think the one thing that has stood me in good stead over the years is patience, patience and have a long view. I always have the long view. And as a leader, you can't just flip from one crisis to the next. You're always going to have crisis. You don't want to react to crises. You want to respond to them. And for that, if you're luxury, luxury always takes the long-term view. I consider myself a luxury marketer. I spend decades in this business, all right? If you look at the oldest brands in the world, they're luxury brands because they take the long view. That's what I learned from them, that today's crisis is tomorrow's opportunity. So always keep that in mind. It's not the end of the world till it's the end of the world, right? It ain't over till it's over. So I'd say be patient, keep the long view, and don't react, respond. Mickey, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, I just, I, I enjoyed every minute of this chat. Thank you so much and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Jess. Really appreciate the opportunity. Great podcast.